0: I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark and to Mark chapter 13. Now, if you've been with us, you know we've spent about the last month and a half working our way through Mark chapter 12. And throughout, Jesus has been in the temple uh, facing religious authorities and answering questions on a whole variety of topics as well as asking His own question uh, of the authorities. But today we're coming to a new chapter The disciples and Jesus have left the temple and they're heading back out to the Mount of Olives. And this chapter is dedicated to just one question, not a whole group of them, but one question, a question from Jesus' disciples about the coming destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem as well as Jesus' return at the end of the age. Now, as many of you know, this chapter includes perhaps some of the most debated and and difficult material in the book of Mark, and I'm about to throw a lot at you here in a short period of time. So I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to work through this together, and I'm going to read a good portion of the chapter here. We're going to read down through verse 31, though we'll mostly be focusing on uh, up through verse 23 this week, and we'll Look at more next week. But listen as we read God's word from Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be preached, proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you give us understanding this morning? And would we see Christ as our Savior and our Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think this week is a good week for me to reintroduce you to Mr. Bertrand Russell. You might remember Mr. Bertrand Russell. He was that British mathematician and philosopher who in 1927 delivered a lecture entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And I mentioned this uh, a, a number of months ago, I guess almost a, a year ago now, because after arguing about various cases for God's existence, he really focused on the character of Christ. And he argued that Christ was actually not very good and not very kind and not very wise after all. I mentioned this back in Mark chapter 5 because he was the one who argued that it was not very good or very kind of Jesus to let all of the pigs drowned in the bay when the demons were sent into them. But he also focuses on our passage this morning and others like it, and he notes that Jesus, or so he says, apparently expected His second coming to occur within a generation. He knows verse 30, that within a generation this, this will, these things will happen. And he said, obviously that didn't happen. Jesus didn't come back again. And so Jesus was wrong, said Mr. Russell. He said, if Jesus is wrong, He can't be divine, and His words can't be trusted. And so this passage is another strike against Jesus in the mind of Mr. Bertrand Russell. Now, I think it's fair right offhand for us to admit that there are different ways to interpret this passage and some of its details. And there are some of the details here. I'm not 100% confident that I have my interpretation right. But having said that, despite these uncertainties, this passage as a whole is clear. And it's clear enough for us to affirm that things, even down to great detail, have happened exactly as Jesus said they would happen. And if things have happened exactly as Jesus said they would happen, even years beforehand, then this passage actually gives us greater reason to trust Jesus and His Word. And that is really, I hope, what we come away with this morning, that we can trust our Savior in what He says. But in order to see that, let's set the stage. It's been a long day in the temple so far. Jesus now walks out with His disciples, and the, His disciples gaze at the temple and uh, its magnitude and its majesty, and, and they exclaim with, with good reason because Herod's temple that was standing in those days was very literally of seven wonders of the world quality. Just the foundation stones, some of the individual stones, if you want to get a picture, would have extended from the piano on this side all the way to the pews over here for length. They would have been higher than my head for height and deeper than this platform. And we have found some of these stones archaeologically. There's massive stones weighing over a million pounds and the stones were brilliantly white and the temple was full of gold and silver so that one author could say that it radiated the rising sun like a snow cloud mountain. And so the disciples gazed with wonder at its strength and beauty. But Jesus says, actually, not one of these stones is going to be left standing on another. Now, this must have seemed impossible just physically to the disciples. How are you going to move in a million-pound stone so that not one's on top of another? But in addition, this was the temple. This is the place God had declared that He would dwell with his, His people. And so what kind of disaster must be that would lead to such a building being destroyed and for God to abandon His temple? I imagine the disciples walking with stunned silence with Jesus But when they finally had gotten out of the city and up on the Mount of Olives and they sat down and they could look across and see the temple complex there, Peter, Andrew, James, and John asked Jesus about his comments. Now I think it's fair for us to say that if we're going to understand what Jesus says, probably the most important thing is to know what question he was answering. If we know what question he's answering, we'll have a lot better ability to understand what he's saying. And so here's the question the disciples ask. They ask, "When will these things be and what will be the sign that they are about to happen?" Now the question is, what are these things? And most obviously, of course, it's the destruction of the temple. Jesus had just said, "Not one stone is going to lay on top of another." And the disciples say, "When are these things going to happen?" So the destruction of the temple is primary in their mind. However, If we were to flip over to Matthew's gospel, we would find there that in the minds of the disciples, a cataclysmic event such as the temple's destruction led them to also think about the end of the age and Jesus' second coming, and they associated those two events. And so Matthew says these things mean the destruction of the temple and Jesus' return at the end of the age. They're both in the disciples' mind. Of course, We know that these two did not happen at one time, but one of the challenges is to discern, okay, when is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, and when is he talking about the second coming of Jesus? Because they were both in the disciples' mind when they asked the question. And I'll just tell you, there's basically four ways to understand this passage. Some interpreters think that the entire chapter is talking just about the destruction of the temple. Others think that the entire chapter is just talking about Jesus' second coming. A third approach is to say that there are similar parallels to both events, and so the entire chapter applies to both. And then a fourth approach is to say that Jesus first addresses the destruction of the temple, and then he turns to the return of Christ after that. And I will tell you that we could probably have good debates and discussions among us amongst these positions, but as I've studied this passage, I hold to that fourth position. I believe that Jesus first addresses the destruction of Jerusalem, and then after that tribulation addresses his second coming. And so that's the way I'm going to walk through this, and I see this answer that Jesus gives in three sections. First, he talks about what are not the signs of the temple's imminent destruction, Then he says what is the sign of the temple's imminent destruction. And then he talks about what's going to happen after the temple's destroyed and he refers to his second coming. So that's the way I'm outlining it here and we'll look at the details. So first we look at verses 5 through 13. Jesus gives four categories of things that are going to happen. Things that could shake the disciples' faith or lead them to think that the end of the age must be upon them but it's not. First, Jesus mentions about false messiahs or people claiming to be the Christ who are actually not. And he says that his disciples should not be surprised that this is happening because he's telling them ahead of time it's going to happen. And if we look back to history between the days of Jesus' ministry in 30 AD and, and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, what do we find? A multiplication of false claims to be the Messiah. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, writes that during that period there was an unusual number of people who claimed to be the promised Messiah in Judea and Jerusalem, just as Jesus had said there would be. Then Jesus says that they will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and the end is not yet. Of course, as he says, kingdoms rising against kingdoms and nations against nations and rumors of war. We're talking about the Roman Empire here. There was constantly war happening somewhere. But if we think more specifically about Jesus' disciples, we know that about 10 years after Jesus' ministry, the Roman emperor Caligula threatened to set up a statue in the Jewish temple. And this caused such outrage and near revolt in Israel that Josephus tells us that wars, rumors of war circulated all throughout Israel in those days. And here we have a clear fulfillment of the rumors of wars that would be going along as well as the kingdoms rising up against kingdoms that would have been happening around it. Again, just as Jesus said, then Jesus said there would be earthquakes and famines, and all we'd have to do is turn over to the book of Acts and find that there was a great famine during the decade between the 40s and the 50s in Jerusalem, and Paul was gathering money and supplies to take to those suffering in the famine. And we know that in the early 60s, in this broader region, that multiple significant earthquakes happened. And Jesus' messages, famines and earthquakes, they are not the sign of the end yet, they are part of the expected sufferings that will happen before these events take place. And then finally, in verses 9 through 13, Jesus told his disciples that they themselves would be persecuted during these days. They would be delivered up to councils and beaten in synagogues, betrayed by brothers and parents and hated for his name's sake. When I read this phrase, that they would be hated by all for his name's sake. My mind immediately went to a phrase in the Roman historian Tacitus. He's describing the Roman emperor Nero. And you might remember from your history books that a huge fire destroyed much of Rome in Nero's days. And Tacitus writes, Nero blamed the fire on a group of people hated for their abominations called the Christians. And here's a Roman historian speaking across the empire of Christians as a group hated by all, just as Jesus had said. But once again, Jesus' disciples are not to think about such sufferings as a sign of the end, rather they are part of God's plan to scatter them and give them opportunity to bear witness for the gospel all throughout the world. And so they're not to be discouraged, but rather they're to trust the Holy Spirit to give them the words that they should say. And they're to endure to the end that they might be saved. And isn't this exactly what happened? As they had the opportunity to bear witness to Christ in synagogues and even before Roman governors and even in the emperor's house itself, Paul tells us, until we could say, Paul could say in Colossians 1.6, the gospel is now bearing fruit in the whole world. Because we think, When Jesus talks about the gospel going to all nations or all the world, it's not necessarily a statement saying every tribe across the globe will have heard the gospel, but rather it's going to go beyond Israel into the nations of the known world, which is why Paul then in 62 AD could say the gospel is now bearing fruit in the whole world. And so once again, everything that Jesus foretold happened just as he said it would happen. But all these things were signs that the temple's destruction was not yet come. But then in verses 14 to 23 we move to the second section of Jesus' answer. Here he talks about what is the sign of the temple's destruction. He says in verse 14, "But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains." And he says they should do so quickly. Now, as I read these verses, I don't think Jesus' words literally mean you can't grab a coat on your way out the door. I think they are Jesus saying, make haste. Don't just think, oh, maybe now I should start to think about possibly leaving at some point. No, don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Now is the time to leave. You're supposed to leave like a spy whose cover's been blown. Get out now. That's Jesus' point. And the reason for haste is that the tribulation and the destruction of this city is going to be beyond description. And again, our historians tell us that the destruction of Jerusalem involved unbelievable suffering. Suffering that was magnified by several factors. On the one hand, within Jerusalem, the Jews were divided into three factions. And they were fighting against themselves. And those factions would kill and rob the other factions and even civilians in order to try to survive and maintain control. But in addition, the Jews carried out several successful plots against the attacking Roman army that killed and injured many Roman soldiers. And it did so in a way that actually stirred a profound hatred amongst the Romans for the Jews, a hatred that led them to spare no mercy and commit some of the worst atrocities that we have on record when they finally took the city. And so the resulting stories of starvation and eating each other and being ripped open alive and rivers of blood in the streets creating lakes in the city describe the tribulation of this horrific destruction. Even at the end, Jesus says, some will falsely claim to be Christ and promise deliverance at the last moment. But he says, don't believe it. They are false. Be on your guard. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, See, I have told you all things beforehand. Now, as we think about these verses, I will say some wonder whether Jesus is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 14 to 23 or whether he's switched to talking about his second coming. However, I don't think so. I think we're still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I believe that first because he's clearly addressing those in Jerusalem and Judea, not throughout the world as a whole. And the context seems to demand that he's still answering their question about the destruction of the temple, that verses 5 through 23 hold together until Jesus concludes there in verse 23, See, I've told you all things beforehand. Not only that, though, but in verses 28 to 31... Jesus declares this parable of the fig tree. He says, just as the fig tree gives forth its leaf so you know summer is coming, so you should watch for these signs. And then he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things, I believe, refer to these things Jesus has told them beforehand. And so I believe Jesus was outlining what signs are not, Going to tell you that the temple is about to be destroyed, then what sign does tell you it's about to be destroyed? And those things would all be completed within a generation. But the bigger question is all right, let's say that's true. The sign Jesus gives to watch for is the abomination of desolation. And what in the world is that? Well, you may remember that the phrase the abomination of desolation is found in the book of Daniel. This phrase is picked up from Daniel's prophecy. However, if you were to turn back to Daniel, you would find that it talks about an abomination of desolation three different times. And they don't all refer to the same event. An abomination of desolation just refers to an act of outrageous blasphemy or abomination of against God. And in chapter 11, Daniel gives a detailed timeline that refers to something that happened in 168 B.C. A foreign king named Antiochus Epiphanes came in and set up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar in an act of great abomination. But Daniel chapter 9 also predicts the coming of Christ and of his death. And it says that shortly after his death, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed With the abominations of a desolator. And that seems to be what Jesus is picking up here, that shortly after his death, Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed and it would be marked by this abomination of desolation. Well, what is this sign then? Mark says, let the reader understand. And we think, well, that's not very helpful. (laughs) How am I just supposed to understand? (laughs) But remember, that Matthew and Mark were Jews writing to Jews who would have understood much more of what he's talking about here. Luke, who was writing to Gentiles who would not have been as familiar with Daniel's prophecy, more like us, Luke says the sign is, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, the desolation is near and you should flee Jerusalem. And so it seems that this abomination of desolation is related to the Roman army coming in and surrounding Jerusalem and ultimately setting up its Roman standard in the temple itself. But the sign to flee is when the Roman army comes in to circle Jerusalem. And what we find is that that is exactly what happened. In 68 AD, two years before the city was destroyed, the Roman army marched from Galilee in the north down into Judea toward Jerusalem. And church historians tell us that when that happened, nearly every Jewish Christian fled Jerusalem. And Eusebius, the church historian, says they fled Jerusalem having been warned by Christ that the destruction was near. And so, what I want to point out to you is even if we are not 100% sure what the abomination of desolation means, it clearly has something to do with the Roman army coming to Jerusalem. And it's clear that the Jewish Christians knew exactly what Jesus was talking about and they fled exactly as he intended them, them to do. And so once again, the sign Jesus gave them was accurate and effective and brought about exactly what he intended. Jesus has told his disciples what are not the signs of the temple's destruction. Then he told them what was the sign of the temple's destruction. But then we go thirdly to verses 24 to 27. These verses talk about the sun darkening, the stars falling, the Son of Man coming, and angels gathering the elect. Now, I will tell you that um, there are some who believe that these verses are still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And the reason for believing that is that in the Old Testament, four different prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos, all used the language of the sun darkening and the moon not giving its light to describe the destruction of Jerusalem for the Babylonians 586 years before. And so they say this language could again be describing the destruction of Jerusalem. And perhaps when Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man, He's meaning coming in judgment rather than coming at the end of the age. And maybe He's saying that after the temple is destroyed, He would then spread the gospel to the four corners of the world to bring people to know Him. And this interpretation is possible but I'm not not persuaded by it. And the reason I'm not persuaded by it is because I don't think it takes into account that phrase where Jesus says, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And that is the same description of Jesus' second coming that we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The angel says we will again see Jesus coming from the clouds as He departed. And it's the same description that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, saying that Jesus will come in the clouds of heaven yet again. And so I think the best way to understand this passage is that in the disciples' mind, the destruction of Jerusalem and Jesus' second coming are all mixed up together. But Jesus addresses the temple's destruction first, up through verse 23, and then notice what he says in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, and he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. And so I believe he's saying, these two are not the same event, but after the Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, then, later, after that, I will come again. I don't know if any of you have ever tried driving a car with one eye covered. Don't, Don't do it just to try it. But perhaps if you've had a patch over your eye or something, uh, you've had to do it. And what you notice is that when you cover one eye, your depth perception is off because your brain uses both eyes to triangulate and see how far apart things are. So if you cover one eye, you can see, well, there's a car ahead of me and there's another car ahead of that. But you can't really tell how much distance is between them because you've lost depth perception. Well, that's kind of the way prophecy functions Oftentimes, Jesus gives us the timeline, but he doesn't tell us how much time is in between the events. And the, the Old Testament prophets do it the same way. And so I think this passage is a timeline of events without depth perception. Jesus says, the temple's going to be destroyed, and then after that, I will return again. But he doesn't tell us how long there is in between. And so I think when we read Mark 13, we're supposed to hear the disciples ask about the temple being destroyed, and what is the sign it's about to happen? And Jesus answers them and talks about the temple's destruction up through verse 23 when he says, I have told you all things beforehand. But then he adds, it's after these things that I will return again. And stepping back from there, Jesus gives the analogy of the fig tree and says, all these things I've told you beforehand, they're going to happen within a generation. But about that day and that hour, no one knows except the Father. And so I think that's the best outline of how to understand that, and we'll talk more about Jesus' second coming next week. But I just threw a lot at you, didn't I? There was a lot of details there, and I would be glad to talk more about this, but perhaps you might be sitting there thinking, "I, I hope I understand God's word better, but How does this all apply to me on a a Thursday morning as I'm sipping my coffee or cleaning up my children's spilled cereal for the 10th time in 10 minutes? Well, I think for two, two ways. Let me give you two applications of this passage as we close this morning. First, do you notice that this whole discussion started because the disciples were so wowed by the temple and its grandeur? Perhaps they found security in the temple, as many Jews did decades later. Perhaps they took pride in the temple as the centerpiece of their life and their faith. But Jesus looks at them and says, this temple, even the stones that are the size of train engines, they're going to be destroyed and overturned. They're going to be smashed to pieces. And I think this is a reminder for us that the things of this world are not permanent. And that's true even of some spiritual things in our lives. I want you to think about how many times maybe have you taken encouragement from from a a preacher of the gospel or found security in the good arguments of of a preacher only to see that preacher fall in a moral failing. A a denomination can be faithful. A church can be a wonderful blessing. A preacher or men and women of faith can be a great joy and blessing to us but if they ever become the things we take comfort in if we ever find our security in a church itself or in a preacher or another person or in a denomination if if they become something we take pride in then our focus has gone to the wrong thing because things of this world are not permanent and can fall And so from its outset, this discussion should remind us all the more strongly to trust God himself, to hope in him, to find our comfort and security in him and in his promises and and in his power and sovereignty and in his steadfast love for his people. If our confidence or encouragement is in anything else, it is on shaky ground. That's the first encouragement for us. But the second is this. Just think about this for a second. Let this think in. Every single thing that Jesus said would happen, happened exactly as he said it would. Now, some people say, well, Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars. Of course that was going to happen in the next 40 years. This isn't that significant of a prophecy, but they're wrong. Because who in the world would have guessed that the gospel of Jesus Christ, known by a couple hundred people in the middle of Palestine, would take over the world? and spread through the entire known world within a generation. Who would guess that one of the most magnificent buildings and structures of the world would be overthrown within a generation? But those things happened just as Jesus said they would. And if every single thing happened exactly as Jesus said it would to this point, we better be sure that everything Jesus has said is going to happen in the future, is going to happen. His words can be trusted. And that means that on some day to come, the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds with great power and glory. And that is going to be a day of mourning and judgment for those who have not submitted to Jesus Christ in faith. It's going to be a day of great joy and redemption for anyone who has looked to Christ. And this isn't just some Christian principle that churches talk about. No, this is the prophetic word of Jesus himself, whose every single other word has come to pass exactly as he said it would. And so it's worth staking our life and our faith that the next events on the timeline will happen with the same certainty as the first events on his timeline. And that means, doesn't it, that it's pretty important for every single one of us in this room this morning to be examining our hearts, to know whether we have genuinely repented of sin and ceased to live for ourselves and have put our faith in Jesus Christ and looked to Him as Savior and Lord. Are you in Him by faith or not? But for those who have trusted in Christ, this changes everything. This changes every Thursday morning It changes every cup of coffee and it changes every spilled bowl of cereal because we know that all of those things and all of those opportunities are chances to be faithful to the Lord now while we wait for a great hope that is coming. The return of Jesus Christ and our full redemption and the righting of every wrong and an eternity of joy and blessing with our King and Savior forever. And if that is certain and is going to happen, it really does change everything. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you've given us this word of yours, and we have done our best to understand it this morning. But what is clear from all of these words is that the things you said would happen have happened exactly like you said they would. And Father, that gives us great encouragement and reason to trust you. And so, Father, I pray that every one of us in our hearts would look to Jesus Christ this morning with greater confidence in your word, with an assurance that you will return again as you have said. And Father, I pray that every one of us would be ready for that return, eager to be reunited with our Savior, waiting for that redemption which will be ours by faith in him. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.